Hello, we are the Salon Sleuths. My name is Melissa. And my name is Leslie. And we are two women from the Pacific Northwest. We are both curious about paranormals, spirit guides, ghosts, past lives. We are suspicious about true crime, disappearances, and strange phenomenons. We are open to learning about the supernatural and all things we don't understand. Together, we're opinionated with a splash of smartass. Join us to learn. And stay curious, stay suspicious, and stay open. Follow Salon Sluice on all major podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us today. Um, it is just me, Leslie. Melissa is out on an adventure in her RV. I'm sure she'll have some fun stories when she gets back. But I did have something really crazy happen yesterday that I can't wait to tell everybody, including Melissa. But today, I'm going to be telling you the story about the I-5 bandit turned the I-5 killer. Along the Oregon coast is a small town of Otto Rock, Oregon. It is just eight miles north of Newport Beach. Now, Newport was the home of Keiko the Whale, if you remember that story. There was also a movie written about that, or produced about that. Um, anyway, he's now passed away, but... Um, <laughs> Within the town of Otterock was a prominent family, the Woodfields. The mother was a homemaker, while the father was an executive at the Pacific Northwest Bell that was a big telephone company back in the day. They had three children, two of them were girls, and their youngest boy was Randall. Now, while in high or sorry, junior high school, Randall started exhibiting sexual dysfunction behavior, and he had a habit of exposing himself in public. Weird habit, huh? While in high school, Randall became a football star. He was a wide receiver. Now, he got in trouble because he exposed himself to some girls on the, Qua the Joaquina Bay Bridge. I believe that's probably between Newport and Otter Rock, but I'm not positive. I know that I've been to the Joaquina uh, Lighthouse before, but I don't necessarily remember exactly where that was. But um, he did get in big trouble for that. His high school, his high school coach helped um, cover it up so he wouldn't be considered a freak within his team. But his parents also forced him to go to therapy um, because they realized, obviously, it was a terrible thing. But right out of high school, his criminal record was expunged, so clear slate. And then he attended Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon. Now, it's on a border, I believe, of Idaho, but I can't be certain. I don't remember exactly, but it is the same town that um, my cousin was gunned down just a couple years ago in a, in a restaurant parking lot by a irrational stranger. So what I would like to do one day is an episode on how to defuse irrational people, but that's coming later. Um, anyway, Randall... Um, eventually transferred to PSU in 1970. He played it, played a wide receiver on the Portland State Vikings. He was um, active in a Christian group while at PSU, and he lived in an apartment near the school campus. That first year at PSU, he was arrested for vandalizing his ex-girlfriend's apartment. And in 1972, he was arrested for public indecency in Vancouver, Washington. Just 15 minutes um, from downtown Portland. It's just really over up and over the bridge. Um, but then um, in 1973, he was arrested again in Multnomah County, which could be anywhere from like downtown Portland. Multnomah County is kind of a big county. So somewhere in Portland, he was arrested again in 1973. Now that brings us to 1974, kind of a big year for Randall. He was um, 
About to graduate college, he had three credits left to go, and he dropped out. He did that because he was drafted to the um, Green Bay Packers as a wide receiver. Now, he went down for training. Everything was going fine. And then all of a sudden, there were a dozen or so flashing incidents that brought a lot of attention to Randall Woodfield. And that made the Packers actually formally cut him from the NFL team. Now, in 1975, Randall Woodfield was arrested for robbery. He would hold women at knife point and force them to do terrible things, and then he would rob them of their handbags. There was some sort of sting that they did to, in order to catch him, something to do with traceable money, and then they were able to track it back to him. But nonetheless, he did confess to the crimes, and he blamed it on poor impulse control due to the steroids he took during football. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he was freed on parole in July of 1979, just four years after going to prison originally, and that was a huge mistake. Just three months later, Sherry Ayers was found bludgeoned and stabbed in her apartment near PSU. Her fiancé had found her, and when they questioned the family, they asked if anybody, if they had any idea who could have done this. The parents did mention that Randall Woodfield and her had exchanged letters while he was in prison, and Randall had known her since second grade. So they went and questioned Randall about the incident, or about the murder, basically, and he denied everything. He was very unhelpful, but because his blood type didn't match the DNA, they couldn't hold him. So just one month later, on Thanksgiving Day, Darcy Renee Fix was going to be going to her parents for Thanksgiving dinner. When she didn't arrive, they went to go check on her. And what they found was her and her friend, Douglas Keith Altig, both bound and shot. Now, uh, Randall Woodfield then again was questioned by police because she was an ex-girlfriend of one of his close friends. Now, this is two people tied to Randall Woodfield, but they just don't have enough evidence, nothing concrete, to hold him, and they had to let him go again. I do want to mention that Darcy owned a handgun. It was a thirty-two caliber revolver. Now, that gun was what was used to kill her and her friend Douglas, but now that gun is missing. So that all happened on Thanksgiving Day. Just a week and a half later, there was a robbery at a gas station with a man wearing a fake beard. Then just four days later, at an ice cream store. One day later, at a restaurant in Albany, Oregon. And during one of the robberies, he was wearing what appeared to be athletic tape across his nose. Then on December 21st, he attacked a young waitress in Seattle. Now, this was the first of sexual nature during the robbery spree. Now, this was a long time ago, and we did not have computers like we do now. So to piece all of these things together was very difficult for detectives. But they were able to reach out to different counties, different states, and piece together that this guy is working from California all the way up to Washington. And they were now naming him the I-5 Bandit. In January of 1981, he robs the same gas station he had robbed before. This time, as he's emptying out the register, he makes a young female attendant open up her shirt and expose herself to him. Three days later, he robbed a market in Eugene, and the very next day, he shot a female grocery attendant inside of Sutherland, Oregon. Now, it doesn't mention if she's passed away or not. I'm just going to assume that she lived, and I am hoping that she did. Then, on January 14th, he enters a home. The only two people at the house at the time were two young girls. They were only eight 
and ten years old. He forced them to undress, and then he assaulted them. Now, just four days later, there are two young girls cleaning an office building. Now, I believe this is after hours. They're doing it part-time just to make some extra money. But they're two best friends, Sherry Hole and Beth Wilmot. Now, they're in there. They're cleaning, and a man enters the building. And he is in a hoodie. He's all covered up. You can barely see him. But he's got athletic tape across his nose. Now this guy proceeds to sexually assault them and do terrible, horrible things to them. He eventually shoots both of them. Thinking that they're dead, he leaves. Well, Beth Wilmot survived. And there is a movie called The Hunt for the I-5 Killer. And this is the story about her and what she went through and how um, everything kind of unfolded for them, for the case, actually. Um, so I would recommend watching that movie if you want to know more about um, the I-5 killer, but she survives and she's, um, she'll play a role later, but he continues south to Eugene, Medford, Grants Pass, all the while he's stopping and committing crimes all along the way. On February 3rd, he open he goes into a home. I believe it's really close to Lake Shasta, but online it's called the Mountain Gate, California. And that's where they found the bodies of Donna Eckhart. Eckhart? She was 37 and her 14-year-old daughter. They were both found, um, found face down and on the bed. And they were both shot and they had both been abused. Terrible. I mean, I couldn't even imagine a mother having to go through that with their daughter right next to them. As the crimes were wrapping up, they were getting shorter and shorter in between attacks. He went from Redding to Ryrica to Ashland, Corvallis, Vancouver, Olympia, Bellevue. And this all happened between February 4th and February 12th. So that's a really short window to go that far and do all these crime sprees in between. But the people that were able to describe the man, they all said he had um, tape across his nose, like athletic tape. Now, uh, Valentine's Day was approaching, and Randall Woodfield thought it would be a great idea to throw a big Valentine's Day party. Now, he invited a bunch of friends. He invited friends and co-workers and all kinds of people. He was going to be throwing this at the Marriott Hotel in downtown Portland across the street from the waterfront. So it was probably pretty embarrassing when nobody showed up. So frustrated, I'm sure, that night he went to a friend's house. Now, there's question of actually how he knew this girl. Some say they worked together. Others say that he might have been a bouncer at a bar that she would go to with her fake ID. Um, some say they even dated. According to family, there's no way that they had dated. She would have never have dated a guy like that. But nonetheless, um, he did go over. She let him in because it showed that they had shared a bottle of wine or at least a couple of glasses. And at some point, he then assaulted her and shot her and she died. Now, this is um, interesting was um, my friend owns an adult care home and I would go in and do some services on some of the residents that lived there. And one of them was this lady, her name was Helen, and I used to do her hands and her feet occasionally. Well, her granddaughter was this young lady, Julie Ritz. Um, she did mention that her granddaughter was killed by the I-5 killer, but she didn't talk much more about it. So February 18th and the 21st, he struck again in Eugene, and then he assaulted another girl in Corvallis on February 25th. 
By February 28th, the investigator, they're solely focused on Randall Woodfield. Now, they were able to get a map and then correlate all the murders using a call log from the calling cards he used from different payphones. Now, this must have been super difficult considering the technology they had back then. I don't even know how you begin to do that when we don't have what we have now. He was using payphones and calling cards, and to be able to connect all of that must have been super terrible, hard work. But they did it nonetheless. On March 5th, 1981, the Salem police were able to bring him in, uh, Randall Woodfield, in for interrogation. Now, during that interrogation, they did have a witness there. That would be Beth Wilmot. She was there to positively identify him as her best friend's killer and the man that shot her, which she was able to do. And because of this, they were able to get a search warrant for his apartment. And that apartment was in Springfield, Oregon, where they were able to go in. The house was, the apartment was pretty clean. Um, the only things that they found were matching athletic tape and in his gym bag, one thirty-two caliber uh, spent shell casing, um, but there was no uh, gun, but that casing did match other known victims. On, on March 16th, he was indicted for murder, rape, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and illegal possession of firearms. And they were looking for anything um, else in various counties and jurisdictions from Oregon to Washington. But in 1981, Woodfield was tried for the murder of Hull. And Wilmot was there to testify for her best friend and for herself. And here's an interesting fact. At the time, the Oregon district attorney was Chris Van Dyke. He is the son of actor Vic Dick Van Dyke. After only three and a half hours of deliberation, Woodfield was convicted and sentenced to life in, pr in prison plus 90 years. In October of that same year, there was going to be another charge of an attack that happened in a restaurant bathroom in Benton County. Now, Woodfield really tried to get that venue changed because he thought it would be unfair. However, he's already going to be in prison for the rest of his life. They thought, He's not going anywhere. They didn't move it, and he got an additional 35 years. The state of Oregon was satisfied that Randall Woodfield would never be a free man, and to, stay, to save the state's money, they would not prosecute him, prosecute him for any other crimes. Now, last I read, he was at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Now, with new technology, they have been able to link Woodfield to a number of other crimes through his DNA. He is a suspect in over 44 homicides. He still claims his innocence. Here's an interesting fact, though. He drove a Champagne Edition gold Volkswagen Beetle. Now, didn't Ted Bundy also drive a Beetle? I thought that was interesting. But honestly, maybe everybody drove those back in late 70s, early 80s. Well... I hope you enjoyed the show. As you can tell, I've been under the weather, um, and it's not as fun without Melissa here. But if you've made it this far listening to this story, I want to thank you for that. I also want you to go to Apple Podcasts if you don't mind leaving a review, a five-star review. The more we get, the more exposure we get to other people to find us. And I think that would be great if you're willing to do that. Um, thank you for joining me today. And we look forward to seeing you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. And thank you to today's listeners. We hope that you will stay curious, stay suspicious, and stay open.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 